This is the Journal of American History podcast for September 2012. Today we are speaking with Professor Matthew Peel, who is an assistant professor of history at Augustana College and author of an article that will be coming out in the Journal of American History in September 2012, Apostles of Fascism, Communist Clergy and the UAW, Political Ideology and Working Class Religion in Detroit, 1919 to 1945. Matt, thanks so much for being with us today. Yes, my pleasure. Thanks for calling. So the subject of working class religion, you write, has long drifted in a curious historiographical no-man's land. Can you uh, tell listeners uh, how so and why is this the case? I don't know if I can say why exactly, but I'll try to outline uh, how, how I think that, that that has come about. Um, you know, it's, it's worth emphasizing first that it's not as if no, nobody or no scholars have been interested in the intersection between religion and class. I think we can trace this probably back at least to uh, H. Richard Niebuhr's The Social Sources of Denominationalism in 1929, uh, Liston Pope's Milhanson Preachers in the 1940s. There have been a series of studies over the course of the 20th century that look at the relationship between religion and class, but if we look at them, for instance, uh, Niebuhr's social sources, uh, he's coming at that as a theologian. Liston Pope writes primarily as a sociologist, and most of the writings tend to come from more of a sociological perspective. For whatever reason, historians tend to be less interested in specifically in the relationship between religion and class, or the experience of religion among the working class. I think kind of the major exception to that which a lot of readers will probably be familiar with, is Herbert Gutman's work in the mid-60s, which appeared in the American Historical Review. And various scholars have kind of pointed to Gutman's piece as, hey, we should pick this up and develop this, and some have. But I think the reason that there's sort of developed this kind of area where working-class religion itself isn't discussed all that much is because if you look at the two major groups of historians who you would expect to discuss it, they would be either historians of labor in the working class or historians of religion. And my interpretation here is that traditionally, up until probably about 10 to 15 years ago, I think that those two groups of historians just basically had different intentions. I think, and, and to some extent, they even saw the purpose of history somewhat differently. I think a lot of historians of the working class coming out of the tradition of the new social history, even back to the traditions of the new left in the 60s and, and, and uh, those type of uh, social movement type histories, you know, I think that they were pretty well informed by this idea of history forming a usable past. And so as they looked at the history of the working class, they would often talk about religion, particularly religion among immigrant communities in, in the industrial era, but the religion tended to be sort of in the background. It tended to be um, maybe window dressing is too strong of a word, but it, it, it tended to be something that didn't get at the ultimate explanation that they were going for, which is where did the American working class come from? How did it form? And what can we learn about that formation to advance social justice or social equality today? How can we make this a useful past? And religion often didn't really figure into that. It was more of kind of a, a background. 
And religious historians, on the other hand, I think particularly since about the 1980s, have been mostly focused on broadening the traditional narrative of American religious history. In other words, they've been more interested in theological and ethnic diversity rather than class per se. And this is largely because so much of American religious history had been seen through a Protestant or even a Puritan or a post-Puritan perspective. And so much of the scholarship over the last 20 or 30 years had been broadening that to include groups like Catholics, Jews, Mormons, Christian scientists, etc., etc., that hadn't been included in that narrative before. So I think you really had two groups of scholars that were kind of fundamentally interested in history accomplishing two different things. And so even though they would involve some of the same issues of social power, they were kind of talking across purposes as far as religious people in the working class as a class and as religious. And I think that's kind of probably where the scholarship is now that I think we're trying to trying to start to patch those together a bit more. Hmm, interesting. Thanks, Matt. And you mentioned that the term uh, working class religion was used pejoratively by both civil and religious leaders in the early and mid 20th century. Can you say a little bit about how people use this and, and why they did so? Yeah, I should emphasize that the term working class religion, as it appears in the article, is really my term. The people themselves really didn't talk about quote-unquote working class religion. They were looking at particular groups, um, immigrant Catholics, African-American migrants from the South, Pentecostal and Baptist white migrants from the South. They tended to look at these groups, and what the, the term working class religion is really my term to say that when we look at the rhetoric that these various civil and religious leaders use for all of these groups, we see, I think somewhat surprisingly, the same type of narrative tropes being told. They're the same images, the same types of stories. And what I noticed in particular that, that really caught my attention were the two terms that tended to come up whenever a, a civil or religious leader or a middle-class figure would look at working-class religion, any of these various working-class religions, they tended to describe working-class religious practice either as very emotional or as potentially authoritarian. So they would go into a storefront church, and they would see the clapping and the singing, and they would say, this is, this, this is not good for society because a, 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 func- a healthy functioning society needs religion to instill habits of sobriety and discipline and respectability, and we don't see working-class religion doing this, therefore there's a potential civic hazard. Or, on the other hand, they would go into a congregation and see it led by a charismatic minister or, or a priest who seemed to be sort of the leader of the community, and they'd say, well, this isn't very good either, because these working-class religious people are just docile. They're sheep-like. They're not thinking for themselves. And these two tropes of emotionalism and authoritarianism run through a lot of the discussion of, their, of these various groups. And what the really kind of the heart of my article is what happens is these two terms, which are seen as negative before World War II, in the context of World War II, become really politicized. And the idea of a large group of working class people that 
are being kind of somewhat controlled by an authoritarian figure and infusing them with uh, emotional excesses, it seems to have a much broader political, ideological resonance than it did when it was just um, these people doing their own thing in the 20s that looked like they might not vote responsibly. All of a sudden, in the 40s, it looks like maybe this is the fifth column. Interesting. And well, let's move to the the case study of, of, out of which you are thinking. Tell listeners about the historical actors in your story and why you focus on Detroit and the UAW and how stereotypes that you just talked about really was politicized by by both right and left, which I found really fascinating in your piece. Right. So the historical actors, as, as I as I mentioned before, in terms of the religious groups that I'm looking at, I'm looking primarily at Catholics, and these are, by the time that we get into World War II, mostly we're talking about second-generation Catholics, but Detroit had a huge Catholic population, by far the largest denomination in the city, and a hugely ethnic Catholic population. Uh, Detroit, I believe, in the 1940s was something like the third or fourth largest Polish city in the world. Not even if you take the number of poles in Detroit, I mean that's 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 the kind of ethnic character that you had to Catholicism. Uh, Catholics was one group, and within the Catholics, there were particular groups that were really interested in the labor movement. For instance, uh, there was a Catholic worker movement in Detroit. There was a very active group called the Association of Catholic Trades Unionists, which published a na- published a national newspaper and organized Catholics to become union stewards in the UAW. So that would be one group. African Americans, the second major group, again, mostly organized through churches. Some of these were older, more historic black churches like the Second Baptist Church. Others become sort of revitalized congregations in the 1930s when African American pastors from other parts of the country who've been informed by the social gospel come to Detroit and see the situation and, and decide to make their churches kind of act, activist centers for promoting a, a, an African-American vision of the social gospel, which many of them see as being forwarded by the labor movement. A, a, a third major group are the Southern whites, which they really become a permanent presence, I would say, during World War II. So they're less central to the story before that. But once you start to see literally hundreds of thousands of Southern white evangelicals coming to Detroit for war industries, they too are forming many uh, storefront churches. They're joining existing churches, and there's one character in particular that I focus on, named Claude Williams, who is a an out and out left wing political radical who comes to Detroit to organize the Southern workers and creates this organization called the People's Institute of Applied Religion to spread this sort of radical democratic vision. Obviously, the UAW, the United Auto Workers, is another major historical actor here as sort of the organizational locus of all of this. Then there are a couple of other characters that I'll just point to real quickly. And these are the, these are the figures who emerge on, on the right and the far right spectrum of Detroit society at this time. The most famous of them is probably Father Charles Coughlin, who, of course, was famous during the 1930s as the radio priest. Um, he's still... He hasn't gone anywhere throughout throughout this period of time. He's still, even after being sort of officially silenced by the Catholic Church late in the 1930s, he still has these semi-political alliances. He's still a very popular parish priest. He's still still seen by leftists as a potentially dangerous figure. He's joined. 
like J. Frank Norris, who is a Southern Baptist from Texas, who was recruited to Detroit in the mid-1930s to, to minister to Southern whites there, and Gerald L. K. Smith, um, who was also a uh, Disciples of Christ pastor who had been an acolyte of Huey Long in Louisiana, and after Long was assassinated, he re- relocates to Detroit, too. So we see this, this kind of polarization emerge by the late 30s between Norris, Coughlin, Smith, and affiliated groups with them, um, the right wing, and Williams, some of the African-American pastors like Charles Hill, um, and various of the Catholic labor rights on the left, and both of them start looking at the others, and they're seeing each other through this prism of the emotional-slash-authoritarian spectrum and worrying that each of the other groups now poses a deep ideological threat to the U.S. For those on the left, they look at the right wing and use this all of this language to say, well, we're on the verge of fascism. For those on the right, they look at those on the left and use the same language to say, we're on the verge of a communist takeover. So that's kind of the core conflict, I would say, that emerges between these various groups. And and thank you. And it's the, if I understand correctly, it's the working class for for each political poll that that reveals the danger to the other. Is that right? Right, right. Because they're they're looking at the religion of workers in particular. Because obviously, it, Detroit is a very working class town. Detroit it's a center of war production, and there is a lot. There are lots of contemporary sources that talk about the religious energy or the religious ferment or the religious excitement. These are the kind of words that the sources use um, over the course of the, of the 40s to talk about it. And when they're talking about energy and ferment, they're talking about what's going on in those working-class neighborhoods, working-class churches, working-class industrial districts, and even on the shop floor itself, in which there are some accounts of upwards of 3,500 unlicensed preachers working in various Detroit plants being directly ministered by one side or the other in this in this faction. So it's, it, the picture that I got was one of almost a kind of cultural trench warfare between these two groups that are trying to shape the relationship between religion and politics over the course of World War II. Were any of I'm thinking of, for example, of African American workers. Were they seen as more of a threat by the left or the right, or did each side stereotype them in in their own ways? Well, the interesting thing is that I think the the African American leaders, people like Horace White and Charles Hill and Malcolm Dade and John Miles. These are some of the the most important of the uh, African-American leaders who were convinced of the social gospel and wanted African-Americans to join the UAW. They, I think, really saw them part of their role as both advancing the African-American working class and demolishing the stereotype of African-American religion as infantile and hysterical and emotional and all of the other negative connotations that had accrued to it. I think they wanted to present a religion that was more ethical than emotional, more universalist than particular. Um, And so I think that they had both a kind of cultural religious as well as political mission in what they were trying to 
think by about 1942-43, after the riots at the Sojourner Truth housing projects and after the, the major race riot in June of 1943. And by that point, those on the right are really seeing interracialism and communism as being virtually indistinguishable. So therefore, all of those people on the left in sort of the, the, the left-wing religious movements are, are promoting uh, a vision of universalism and racial tolerance, and they're saying, well, any any attempt to promote some sort of racial exclusivist vision is the equivalent of fascism. Well, the response to that on the right is to look at those people and say, well, any attempt to create this sort of interracialist vision is the equivalent of communism. So it becomes, I think, more complicated by about the mid 1940s. And the UAW, which is prominent in in the title, talk a little bit about the, the significance of the UAW in this story. Yeah, you know, to some extent, I'm still kind of debating what <laughs> what role does the UAW play in this, and what what is where exactly do they stand? Because they're obviously a secular organization. They have very clear material interests that they're involved in. But it was clear to me that from the from the mid 1930s, from almost from the very first issue of the United Auto Worker newspaper, they they are acutely aware of the fact that the workforce that they are trying to organize is very diverse and is very religious, and they are constantly running up against the threat of being not just red baited, which I mean people. Readers will broadly know the UAW was red-baited, but religion-baited. Uh, Henry Ford, in particular, tried, uh, makes numerous attempts to form sort of company unions within the Ford Auto Company by describing the UAW as irreligious or unchristian or a threat to Christian values. And many of the other industrialists do this, too. And the UAW is very sensitive about this. So they, they know that they can't just ignore religion, because if they do... They, they will be sort of baited as this secular anti-religious force. So I think what they try to do is to adopt the language of the middle-class social gospel from the early 20th century and to wed it to the language of industrial democracy that it also developed. The industrial democracy language was much more of a kind of working-class language in the progressive era. The social gospel tended to be more of a middle-class response, and I think the UAW tries to combine both of them within this framework of, a, of, of, a, of universalism, of ethical tolerance, of a brotherhood of man type vision, um, of creating, uh, Elizabeth Cohen has used the phrase, a culture of unity to describe the uh, culture of the CIO in the late 1930s, that the UAW tries to tap into that in any specifically religious sense. And they do this in speeches, they do this in newspapers, they're constantly publishing letters from auto workers around the Detroit area commenting on religious topics um, and actively soliciting the cooperation of Catholic bishops, Catholic organizations, African-American ministers, um, pretty much any religious ally that they can find, they want in, in their camp. So it's, it's kind of an interesting case of a, of a, of a clearly secular or, uh, institution that in key positions is influenced by radicals and even communists that nevertheless is keenly aware of the role of religion in working class life. 
So uh, this is fascinating, Matt. Uh, am I correct in thinking that uh, they were trying to draw connections uh, not only with the Protestant social gospel movement uh, and obviously interracial uh, progressive thought of African-American communities, but Catholic social justice strands as well? Right. Yeah, absolutely. And and, and uh, uh, an interesting person for this is someone like George Hattie's. Who, who is a leading figure? He has various positions at, 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 in the early UAW. Hattie's ultimately runs on the ticket with R.J. Thomas against Walter Ruther in the famous 1946 UAW presidential election when Ruth, Ruther wins the election and then the communists are subsequently kind of purged from the UAW. Well, Hattie's was raised a Catholic, he was a practicing Catholic. And there's quite a bit of correspondence where he's writing to bishops in the area, to priests in the area. He's talking about using Catholic principles as the basis for UA, for the UAW. And yet, Addis is so closely associated with the left wing and with the communists that even the most liberal Catholics distance themselves from him. They're, they're, they're more drawn to Ruther's semi-Protestant but non-communist version of uh, of a UAW social gospel than they are to Hattie's, even when he's evoking their own doctrine. But he's politically questionable. So it, 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 it highlights a lot of the really complicated lines between religious affiliation and political affiliation that are being hammered out here. It's a fascinating story. Uh, what do you see as the legacy of, of this story of working-class religion in, in our own time? Yeah, that's an important, I mean, that's always an important question, I think, that historians want to think about. I, the first thing that, that occurs to me is just almost everything, maybe not almost everything, but much of what I have read so far this year about the upcoming uh, election in November, there's a lot of discussion of the, quote, white working class male as being kind of one of the pivotal one of the pivotal demographics, right? If Romney's going to upset Obama, he needs a white working class vote. If Romney, if if uh, if Obama is in trouble, it's because the white working class vote is turning against him. There's been a lot of discussion about this. Um, I think religion plays into this a lot, but I also feel that a lot of the discussion about the role of religion and working class religion today has tended, frankly, to fall into a lot of the same kind of narrative pitfalls that, that it earlier had. I, I, I think, for example, of kind of two major narratives that, that are out there today, one on the left, one on the right, one on the left, I would think of someone like Thomas Frank, who wrote in What's the Matter with Kansas, that conservatives have basically co-opted cultural religious symbolism in order to convince the working class, especially the white working class, to vote on the basis of religious issues rather than economic issues. So the key is uh, people on the left need to speak to, need to reemphasize these economic issues and convince voters of their real interest. Well, then I think of someone on the right, like Charles Murray, who just published this book, Coming Apart, um, over this year, and looks at what he calls the disintegration of the white working class, and he sees the, the lack of religion as being uh, central central here, right? So they're either, either the working class are too religious, and they're not seeing their economic interests, or they're not religious enough, and it's destroying um, communities, and we need to get back to traditional virtues of individualism and whatnot. It seems like a lot of what's going on is that 
writers on the right and left are, again, I think, kind of using working class religion as an object to describe their own political interests, rather than actually understanding working class religious people in their own, on their own terms and in their own communities. If there was one theme that I think was pretty consistent from working class religious people themselves, it's, it's the desire to be respected. Um, it's a desire to be taken seriously and not to be, not to be stereotyped and not to be placed into these narratives that don't really have that much to do with their own uh, desires or experiences, either of religion or of class. And and narratives that uh, reduce religious experience to something else, like psychological aberration or uh, uh, purely economic interest. And I would expect that in looking at the religious experience of different communities in your, your larger project in the way, say, that uh, Bob Orsi does, you know, in Catholic communities where he offers these thick descriptions of, of what Catholics do and what it means to them. There's tremendous variety and no doubt contradictory variety in the, the religious experience of people <laughs> who are in in the economic working class? Is that right? Yeah, that's. I mean, I I I have to say I don't have a the space in the article to get into that. But my my I think my broader one of the things that I have kind of come to believe as a broader conclusion on this is that is the tremendous amount of ambiguity that that religion deals with. It seems like there 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 are a lot of contradictory impulses or seemingly contradictory impulses, that religion for working-class people and doubtless for other people, too, somehow manages to reconcile. But it only really makes sense if you're looking at it, as you say, in, 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 a, in a thick description within that worldview. It doesn't, you don't really get that by looking at it from the outside, particularly if that outside is already being filtered by a particular ideological or social perspective. So let me let me ask you. Uh, it's not fair to ask you to write a New York Times op-ed in the closing minutes of a podcast. But uh, given your critique of both the left and the right continuing to use narratives that are are not interpretively helpful, uh, just think off the top of your head for me. If you were writing an op-ed f- for the New York Times, uh, trying to introduce readers to a different way of thinking than the, uh, the, the Obama line or the Romney line, what would, what would the two or three central arguments be in what you wanted to write? Well, I would have to think about the arguments. I, the first thing that I would probably want to do is just to introduce the experiences of actual people um, and to show how religion actually functions in a life that is shaped by economic circumstance. And uh, Robert Bruno, um, in his book Justified by Work, I think does this terrifically. And I think he really hits the nail on the head where a lot of working class religious people, you know, they value work. They value the act of work. They value honesty. They value frugality. They rarely complain about there a lot. They clearly recognize that there are injustices and that they suffer from some of those injustices. But they tend to focus more on is this person an honest person? Um, is this, does this 
person work honestly? Um, does this is this person committed to community and family? And I think that those those elements are deeper than simply either a policy program or a kind of soundbite. I, I I think you would the first thing you would want to do is just kind of get it get in at the level of the way religion is lived among those lives and in those communities before you could start making policy recommendations or speeches about it. Fair enough. Fair enough. Matt, is this uh, article part of a, a larger book project that you're working on? Yes, uh, it is. It came out of a dissertation that I finished in 2009 at Brandeis University. And uh, I, I've been hammering away at a larger manuscript. The larger manuscript covers from the, about the progressive era through the late 60s. So it's basically about three generations. The generation that migrates in uh, around World War One, the World War, the Depression, World War Two era generation, and then the post-war generation through the end of the 1960s. Well, we'll we'll be looking forward to that book, Matt, very much. And uh, I wanted to thank you so much for taking the time to do this podcast. It's my pleasure. Please support the journal by becoming a member of the Organization of American Historians. Subscribe online at www.oah.org, and you will receive a printed copy of the journal four times a year. Thank you for listening to the Journal of American History podcast. Join us in December 2012 for our next podcast. If you have comments or questions, please email us at jahcast at oah.org.